you wanted the best, you've got the best podcast. The hottest, hottest. podcast in the world. In the world. The Chris Voss Show, the preeminent podcast with guests so smart you may experience serious brain bleed. Get ready, get ready. Strap yourself in. Keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the vehicle at all times because you're about to go on a monster education roller coaster with your brain. Now, here's your host, Chris Voss. Hi, folks. This is Voss here from thechrisvossshow.com, thechrisvossshow.com. Hey, we're coming here with another great podcast. We certainly appreciate you guys tuning in. Thanks for coming by, guys. Be sure to refer the show to your family, friends, relatives. Tell them, hey, have you downloaded, signed up, subscribed to The Chris Voss Show? You can subscribe everywhere, which makes it most amazing. Even like Amazon and Audible, you can listen to it on Amazon and Audible for free. Too free for an unlimited time, they tell us. Of course, you can get it everywhere iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, wherever fine podcasts you listen to. <laughs> I think that's my new line. Anyway, go to youtube.com for just Chris Foss, hit the bell notifications, so you can see all the wonderful videos we do here. Also, go to uh, what is it? Uh, goodreads.com for just Chris Foss, all the groups we have on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, all those different places. Go see those. As always, we have brilliant authors and journalists on the show, I should say. Today, we have Nathan. Bomi. He is the author of the newest book that he's written, Bridge Builders, Bringing People Together in a Polarized Age. So he certainly has uh, bitten one off here to take and bring to us the news of. And this episode is brought to you by a sponsor, ifi-audio.com and their micro IDSD signature. It's a top of the range desktop transportable DAC and headphone app that will supercharge your headphones. It has two brown burr DAC chips in it and will decode high-res audio and MQA files. We're using it in the studio right now. I've loved my experience with it so far. It just makes everything sound so much more richer and better and takes things to the next level. IFI Audio is an award-winning audio tech company with one aim in mind, to improve your music enjoyment of quality sound, eradicate noise, distortion, and hiss from your listening experience. Check out their new incredible lineup of DACs and audio enhancement devices at ifi-audio.com. Nathan is a reporter for the USA Today based in Washington, D.C. area and the author of two previous books, Detroit Re... I'm sorry, Detroit Resurrected to Bankruptcy and back after the fact, the erosion of truth and the inevitable rise of Donald Trump was another one. He is a regular guest on TV, radio stations, including CNN, MSNBC, ABC, NBC, and NPR. He's also received the National Headliner Award, the Michigan Notable Books Award, and multiple honors from the Society for Advancing Business Editing and Writing. And lo and behold, here he is. Nathan, welcome to the show. So good to be here. So good to have you. Thank you. Very much an honor. We had we were talking before the show, we had your compatriot Susan Page on this show, and uh, that was wonderful to have. So we're just eventually going to have the whole staff there at USA <laughs> Today the way we're trying to go. Susan's a superstar, so if I can uh, do half as good as her, then it's a good day. All right. I think you will. Give us your plugs, Nathan, so people can find you on the interwebs. Well, you can certainly find me on Twitter at Nathan Bomey, N-A-T-H-A-N. B-O-M-E-Y. You can also check out my website, NathanBomey.com. But Twitter is probably the best way to get a hold of me. You can also see how to buy the book there. It's in my bio. It's all pretty easy to find. There you go. So what motivated you to want to write this book? 
I actually, the, the, the second book I wrote, like you mentioned, called After the Fact, was about the age of misinformation that was published in 2018. I walked away from that experience just pretty overwhelmed by how incredibly divided we are as a country uh, over misinformation, but over all sorts of issues. And having done the research, dug into the issues, really understood from a very human perspective how deeply divided we are. You can't walk away from that experience without thinking that I'm not sure that we can do anything about this. You couple that with the fact that as a national journalist, I experience every day the division and the hate that you see, often directed at journalists, but often just seeing people lobby it at each other, and you're immersed in it. And, and so in view of those things, I said, I've got to go out and meet people who aren't accepting the status quo. I've got to go out and talk to people who are trying to bridge differences, whether it's politics, politics religion, class, or culture. I just had to go out and meet people who were not accepting that status quo. And so that's what I did. Starting in late 2018, started going out, meeting people across the country, just trying to understand how are you doing this? Because so many of us don't seem to be capable of it. So are there specific people that are trying to build bridges? Because I gave up on my bridges. I just burned them all and said, (laughs) if you're, if racism is like, to me, racism is in politics. That's just racism, and that's just a horrible thing yeah. to be doing. And when people are like, well, is this politics? No, it's not. It's just, it's just, it's like murder isn't politics either. If you murder somebody, that's murder. That's a heinous yeah. crime. So h- how did you find these people that were building bridges, and where are they? <laughs> yeah, no, good question. Yeah, I do think that there are rare species. To be a bridge builder is to, to be someone who's really living counterculturally, and it's not a normal thing to try to meet people and to, you know, try to gain respect for an an understanding for people who look differently, pray differently, think differently. That is going against the grain. And so it wasn't in some areas, it was easy to find the right people in other areas. It was not. I tried to make this somewhat organic where I didn't want to force it. You know, one just don't want to just Google something and say, "Eh, introduce me to some bridge builders. That doesn't really work. And so I had a couple people in mind in, in advance who I thought would be good. And then I built out from there. But for example, uh, it was not that difficult to find people who are trying to bridge gaps on race and ethnicity issues. Went to Charlottesville, talked to people in Charlottesville who were dealing with the aftermath. But then it was extremely difficult to find people who are using social media to try to bring people together. Talk about an area where it was just like, I can't find anybody. So that one took a long time. Eventually found in this amazing group that is actually trying to do that. It, it was an organic process, but a really rewarding one. You're right about how building bridges is the best way to begin addressing America's crisis of polarization, but it doesn't require unity. Can you explain what that means? Yeah, I think it's really important because the concept of a of unity or the goal is idealistic. And I understand why you might want that. And maybe in an ideal society, we would have unity. But it's not necessarily the goal of people I interviewed for this book. Their goal is more to achieve some sort of respect or, or understanding and, and, and appreciation for our shared humanity in the sense that I, I no longer demonize or dehumanize you as a person. I understand that you have, you, you're a human and you have uh, perspectives on the world that oftentimes are legitimate. And we're not saying there's no excuse for hate and intolerance and things like that. We're not talking about that. We're talking about issues where there is 
plenty of room for perspective and we can actually find some respect for each other's humanity. So it's not that we have to agree. We don't, in fact, conflict is completely okay. Bridge builders embrace conflict because they understand that is actually key to a free society, a free democracy. It's not a democracy without conflict. That's Mm -hmm. an authoritarian government. So we're going to have a conflict. Question is, how do we deal with it? And it can be a conflict that, you know, friction that generates fire, of course. But the question is, does it burn the building down? Or do we use it as a refiner's fire of sorts? And you talk about, much like uh, real-world bridge building, the metaphorical type does not necessarily require people to meet in the middle. So how does that work? How do we meet? So I I was called to mind the song by Maren Morris and uh, Zed and Gray, I think it is, where it says, baby, why don't you just meet me in the middle? Mm -hmm. And I, I understand that's oftentimes like how we view this sort of thing. But the reality is that actually oftentimes we don't necessarily have to meet in the middle to build bridges. And it, I actually took the opportunity for this book to go out and meet real life bridge builders, people who are actually doing the architecture and contracting and engineering of real life bridges. And I said, give me an understanding of how you do your work. And they pointed out, they said, we actually don't always meet, build the bridge to meet directly in the middle. Sometimes you actually build the bridge from one side of the ravine to the other side, which I found to be very fascinating. And from a mm-hmm. metaphorical perspective, same thing where, you know, sometimes, yeah, you, the other side is completely wrong and you're completely right. Now, I don't think that's usually the case, but it's like, except for if I'm arguing with my wife, then I'm completely right. But exactly not the case. But no. so usually there's going to be some degree of right and wrong. And so the question is, how do we try to reach the other side? And even if you do genuinely feel like, and you, you maybe you have completely correct reasons to feel like you're in the right. The reality is, unless you build that bridge to the other side, in a lot of cases, you're not going to achieve progress for yourself. This isn't just about them. It's about you too. Yeah. Somehow we need to build better bridges to each other. So how do you know that you should be building a bridge to the other side, that it's worth taking the time to build to the side? Yeah, it's tough. I I think that we can all agree that we're immersed in vitriol, immersed in divisiveness and, and polarization. And I think most of us have a pretty good idea when we are ensconced in some sort of a political brokenness in some way, or whether it maybe not politics, maybe it's race, or maybe it's religious, or maybe it's something, some sort of cultural issue where we're divided. And the question is, are you, do you believe that things will get better if you just stay in your camp? Or do you believe that things will, could potentially get better if you step out of your camp or if the two camps have a meeting of some sort, because we use the word tribalism a lot to describe how we are in America now. And I think it's pretty accurate because you know what? We're still pretty segregated in this country, segregated by race. Yes. But also segregated by politics, by certainly of course, geography, that being the sense of the term, but urban versus rural, for example, by religion, Dr. Martin Luther King said that Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America. We don't tend to know people who are, who think differently, look differently, pray differently than we are. And I believe in the fundamental thread of this book is that if you don't form relationships between people who aren't like you, then you won't be able to understand people who aren't like you. That's true. Understanding who people are. I've had, I had a few friends that they're very anti-gay and anti-gay marriage and they're religious. And so I talked to them and I told them about some of the struggles of what gay people go through and why this is important. They can't hold the hand of a loved one as they're dying in a hospital bed unless they're afforded these certain rights. And the more I told them about the different experiences of that and how really what goes on between two people is a thing of love usually, unless you're married, then, you know, 
who knows what's going on there. I'm just kidding. I'm doing marriage jokes. The, I'm just kidding, people. But And so the more I espouse that sort of experience to them, the more their minds started to change where they realized that these are human beings too. Yeah. And so I think there's pertinence in what you talk about, how we need to identify that people are human beings. And it, do, do we need to sit down and say, look, it's not about trying to be right or wrong. It's about... How do we figure out what's best for everyone, including ourselves? Yeah. Maybe, for example, you being 100% for me, trying to fight to be 100%. We figure out how there's got to be a balance that we can achieve where I can maintain some semblance of, I think we're heading in the right direction. We recognize there are certain things that need to move forward for our country or for our people or for humanity in and of itself. Yeah, Um, yeah. I would say, I think we, we need to agree to, we need to be able to agree to disagree. And yet that is become an anachronism where Mm -hmm. the idea that we can agree to disagree is actually like something we can't even agree on itself. That it's it's just certainly like we live in this hot take culture where I am going to spew my takes and I'm going to embarrass because it makes me feel good. And that ultimately just leads to the completely counterproductive spiral into further and further divisiveness. And what I find is that bridge builders choose inclusion over exclusion, of course, but they also choose nuance over caricature in the sense Mm -hmm. that they're not going to label people. They're not going to try to put people in a box because they understand that people are complex, that you Mm -hmm. can't just put a two-word phrase on someone and say, this encompasses all of who they are. Mm -hmm. And I, I think oftentimes we fall into that trap. It's easy to see the world through a binary lens, but really you need to see it through this prism. And I, I think that bridge builders are pretty intentional about understanding that if I am not curious about the world, then I am actually like doing a disservice to myself. Mm-hmm. But to your point in terms of how do we understand that we need to be on, we need to somehow come to this understanding that, okay, it's okay if we disagree, but, but we have to work on this. I think it comes down to the recognition that our destinies are interwoven with each other because we live in this two-party democracy. We live in a, in a system where we're not going to progress. Literally, the system is built up to prevent us from progressing unless we work together. Like This is the system we're stuck in. It's the family we're born into. And in, unless this dysfunctional family starts working again, we're not going to be able to, fig- to, to progress together. Martin Luther King said, we're caught together in this inescapable web of mutuality. Valerie Cower, a Sikh civil rights activist, just came out with this amazing book last year called See No Stranger, where she says, you are a part of me. I do not yet know. And the point being that even if we disagree, even if I don't understand how your destiny can be interwoven with mine, then, you know, I can, if I understand at least case, then I can start to pursue that and say, okay, let me learn more about you and understand why we are caught together in this way. There you go. That's really what we need to do. How do we get people disengaged though? Because some of these people get caught in the message machines, especially on the right side, the Betsy DeVos billion dollar machines that run radio. And you've got this flood of memes that are had different racist tropes or political tropes of stuff. And people just, people aren't thinking politically anymore. They're just sharing little jabs back and forth. Like this person's in that and this person's in that. How do we take that to a discussion as opposed to just throwing up lazy memes? I do think it's a, incredibly difficult vortex that so many people are stuck in, like you said. And I do think it's important to acknowledge up front that a lot of people are not going to get out of that vortex. It's just, it is what it is. And in some ways we have to understand that. I actually, in this book, don't necessarily cast an optimistic outlook. And I try to say, here are the, here's the path 
toward mm-hmm. progress. Not necessarily that we will make progress because I can't necessarily say that, but, but I would say that if we, to try to get people out of that, I think that it starts again, goes back to this understanding that we need to build relationships between people who aren't like each other, but it doesn't necessarily need to be all organic. I actually think that there are some ways we can start to do this on a national scale or into in our institutions. And I think about schools, for example, if adults like you and me are a lost cause, Chris, Maybe the kids aren't like we can maybe agree that the kids maybe still have some room to. No, that's true. That's true. But they're no. the future, and so if they're going to drive the discourse in this country going forward, then maybe we start in schools and we say, "Hey, listen, we live in this remote Zoom-oriented educational world now. Why can't this district say to this other district, let's put our kids together and have class projects? Let's actually have them work together. Why do we have to let the classroom boundaries restrict how kids get to know each other now? Kids are mm-hmm. virtual." digital, they'll they'll embrace this. And Mm. so I I think that's a small way. Those sorts of things, we can start to do some small things. And the other idea is American public service campaign, a national public service campaign that actually has been embraced on a bipartisan perspective from Republicans and Democrats, approved under President Obama to triple the number of national public service positions. We're talking about AmeriCorps, for example. And the idea is it's it's all there. Just got to get the funding to do it now that Congress needs to give the money to get up to a million positions because you know what when you're serving someone shoulder to shoulder you often tend to learn from them you get to understand their perspectives and you learn from the people you're serving and i think that there's that's a proven way to bridge divides there you go were there any stories of bridge builders that stuck out in your book that you told Oh, there's so many, you know, it's it's just that I would point you to one, for example, that I think is on a topic that maybe some of your listeners will be passionate about. Climate change is obviously something I think we can agree is something we have to do about, something dramatic about. And yet it seems like we're just stuck on this issue. How do we build bridges on an issue that actually defines our future as a planet, as a people? And I met this was a former Republican congressman from South Carolina, still a Republican, still a conservative, still Christian, active Christian, but he's become a, an avid believer for the need to do something dramatic about climate change. And he says, hey, I know how to reach my fellow conservatives. He's actually trying to build bridges on his own camp, which I find to be so interesting. He's trying to help conservatives build a bridge to show, hey, listen, you can walk across to the other side. Now, the difference that the, between the approach he takes and the approach that's often taken on the left is he says he's trying not to say to conservatives, change your values. He's trying to say, here's how action on climate change fits within your values. Because uh-huh. if, we, if we try to get people to change who they are, uh, no matter what it is, like chances are pretty low that people are going to change their identity because the science is so they're not going to do that. That's who they are. But yeah. if you can say, no, listen, this actually aligns with who you are, then they're much more likely to, to say, okay, I, I can do this. So yeah. I, I think that's a really interesting perspective. And it comes down to really simple things. Like he says, it's not talking about believing in climate change because that's a word that Christians often act, associate with religion. They, they don't want to believe in climate change as a value system. But let's say, no, we understand that the science is accurate or something more like less religious, Just basic language decisions. Sometimes mm-hmm. it comes down to some simple things that we can do to start to reach the other side. That's pretty interesting. Now you talk about how journalists can be bridge builders as well. How does that yeah. work? This is really important to me because as an as a journalist, I've been in local journalism for many years, now been in national journalism for six years. And I, to me, I didn't want to write a book like 
lens on myself and on my own industry and saying, what can we do to actually contribute to this? But also what have we done to make things worse? Because Mm -hmm. I will defend all day long journalists from these false accusations of fake news like that has harmed us as industry, as individuals, it's harmed our democracy. But so I reject those. But at the same time, I also have to say, I do think there are some things that we have mistakes we've made. And maybe we've sensationalized a little too much, chase the clicks, chase the ratings, stretch things just a little bit, every little stretch ends up leading to a break. And so I, I feel like we can't talk about this without at least saying, okay, let's look inward and say, what can we do? And I think, and I met this amazing group called 100 Days in Appalachia, which is doing nonprofit grassroots journalism in, in throughout Appalachia, actually, based in Morgantown, West Virginia. I went there and I'm talking to them and they're saying, listen, we're doing great journalism, just like they are at the Times or the Post, or if we're just doing it on a local level, we're trying to tell authentic stories about the people of Appalachia, who in a lot of ways have been caricatured over the last four to five years by the national media. Folks like me, unfortunately, who've painted these very unfair and oftentimes sensational portraits of these people, you know, the toothless coal miner and, and that sort of thing. And it's, it just it ends up creating more distance between the media and the public. So they're trying to restore trust between the media and the public. And that sort of bridge building is one of the most difficult, I think, that we have. But it's so yeah. crucial to our democracy. The I think we had some journalists on who wrote some books. I think it was called Censored, and it was from the New York Times. And he, he wrote about how, I guess, looking at the Reuters, he looked at, he basically looked at the Reuters feed, not the Reuters feed. What's the other feed? The AP feed. Mm-hmm. I think it was the AP feed. And he compared the titles of the stories that were being fed through the uh, Associated Press to the stories that were in the New York Times during Trump's administration. And he pointed to a salaciousness of how they were jacked up, but as he claims uh, by the New York Times to, to be more salacious. Maybe that's an example of where there needs to be better bridges building, maybe better language in our in the wordings of our press. Something and it's our own fault. Like I have people that say, oh, the press, they put a, everything's on fire and whatever. And if it bleeds, it leads. And but. Then I'm like, they do that because that's what you respond to. If you wouldn't respond to it bleeds, it leads. And you're like, hey, we want to see more stories of what isn't going to kill us tonight. You know how <laughs> local news always does that thing. Tonight at 11, how a teddy bear will kill you in your sleep. It's just waiting. It's been waiting yeah. this whole time. Don't let it near the knives. And you're just like, what? The teddy bear? Yeah, that you go. Yeah. Gummy bears. Anyway, we can talk. Well, about I say that journalists don't have, we don't really have, obviously there's some biased people out there, but we, in general, we don't have a bias toward one side or the other. The bias is toward conflict. Like you said, Mm -hmm. the bias is toward some sort of intense conflict that will ultimately draw in eyes. And so we're not going to stop covering conflict. Of course, that's not going to be the case if we stop doing But I think the question is, how do we frame those stories? And like you Mm -hmm. said, how do we write those headlines and what angles are we pursuing there? Because, and again, what 100 Days in Appalachia is doing is trying to pursue more solutions-oriented journalism, where they say, here's the conflict, but let's talk about how do we solve this? Mm -hmm. We're not going to necessarily dwell on the conflict as much as we are going to say, but how do we move us forward? And I think oftentimes Mm -hmm. we as journalists commit the sin of ignoring the solution. And a lot of times we just don't get to that part of it, or it's like a 
throw in at the end of the story or the news report. And I think that actually there's, it's pretty proven. People actually do want to see that because mm -hmm. the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel a couple years ago eliminated their, most of their op-ed content. Now they're actually owned by my company. So just full disclosure, but they found they were going to invest in solutions oriented journalism. And they found readership actually went way up because wow. people were like, you know, I'm sick of all the hot takes and I can get that anywhere. In fact, that's everywhere. You can find plenty of opinions, not many solutions. And I think people are pretty hungry for that. I think they are, especially after Trump. I had a lot of people say to me, the news media is really biased. And I'm like, why? Because they're always writing bad things about Trump. And I'm like, do you ever consider that maybe he's doing a lot of bad things? <laughs> and like, he's doing stuff that like no president has ever done ever, like on a daily fucking basis. I watch Rachel Maddow and you'd see her throw away a whole show every night. She's like, we wrote a show, but uh, this <laughs> is just off the news. So we got to throw that show away and... And here's the new burning building. And so I like this. I think it's interesting to focus on more results-oriented news. Maybe tonight at 11, that teddy bear will kill you, but we'll show you how not to. Well, here's the thing. I think people, readers, viewers, they, and listeners in your case, understand that we are going to write and talk about tough issues. Like, they get that. They're not going to... Um, shy away from that, but they want you to do it in a way that's responsible and authentic to who the people are. And I think when it comes to journalism, uh, a lot of times it needs to be local journalists who tell these stories, not national journalists like myself, because if you're a local journalist, you're on the ground, you understand the community. Again, you have the relationships, which I think in a lot of cases is what's key to restoring the trust. The national journalists pray that we pr you know, parachute in, we don't really know the story. A lot of times we get it wrong. Sometimes we get it right, but it can be a crapshoot. And I think we, we can't discount the role that the destruction of journalism as economically over the last 20 years has played in diminishing the trust between people and the media. There just simply aren't many journalists left in a lot of these communities. Sometimes there's none. How yeah. can we trust people to, how can we expect people to trust a journalist if they don't know one, it's like they don't even know these people. How can they trust them? And so I think we need to see more investment in especially nonprofit journalism, which we are starting to see a lot more of now, where foundations are putting money into journalism saying, this is part of our democracy. We have to yeah. have this if we're going to achieve any sort of progress together. You bring up a good point that made me realize some. When I grew up, there was three channels. There was ABC, NBC, and CBS. And then you had a couple of black and white channels if you lived in california that would play like uh godzilla and you knew your journalists you knew yeah. who the people were you, you knew who bob woodward was and you knew the top journalists and you'd watch 60 minutes and you'd see mike wallace and you knew your journalists but now everything's so disconnected and broken of course everybody and their idiot dog with a youtube channel and a and a video camera is a <laughs> podcaster wait what or a journalist these days like everyone's right. a journalist there you go the you, you don't know and there's a level of trust that's not there there's so many people that will cover different things now i i don't even I imagine big organizations like yours they have hundreds of different people that work for them and just trying to figure out who, who is this again and maybe that's where the level of trust got lost over the years with journalism I don't know yeah I think it is I'm 37 but I started my career when I was 17 I, as a journalist in high school and I, I go to college 
So the, for the four years I'm in college and that last year in high school, I worked at the community newspaper in my hometown, just a little weekly paper. And I don't know why the editor trusted me to do this job, but he sent me out to cover sports and features. And then also the township board of trustees meeting. So I'm sitting there, the Lodi township board meetings, trying to figure out like, why are they debating septic system zoning requirements and all this bizarre stuff about gravel quarry regulations and things. And I'm, I, I didn't really understand it right away, but eventually I figured it out. And the, the point point is that I was there. I, at least I was someone who was what was happening in this community. And I had the relationships with people there who understood who I was. They understood my byline. And you like you said, they had the trust in me. Maybe they don't always agree with what I wrote, but they understood who I was as a person. And I think that on the ground kind of journalism is so much more effective in establishing trust with the public than the talking heads on cable news who oftentimes are going to just generate more and more outrage. And I understand that outrage generates revenue, but it's not good for our democracy. Yeah, not good for our democracy at all. You talk about how bridge builders still stand up for truth, but they also recognize there's room for perspective. Give us a little bit better definition. What's the difference between perspective and truth? I do think it's always important to say up front that you can't build a bridge across an ocean. You know, it just can't be done. But not every divide is an ocean. Oftentimes the divides are that we think are oceans are more like rivers, that you can actually do bridge it. You're just not really unsure why, or maybe the divide looks bigger than it is in real life. And so that I like to look at is this idea of a stadium where you're watching a game. Let's say you and I go to a football game or a basketball game. And let's say, let's go to the big house in Ann Arbor, the area I grew up in in Michigan, where Michigan Wolverines play 110,000 people. And I'm sitting on one side and I see Charles Woodson make a play in the field. And this would have been like the late nineties. I see it in one, get in one way. To me, the play unfolded in a way that's just really irrefutable. I saw it my way, but you know what? It's 109,999 other slightly different and sometimes much different perspectives on how the play, the same play unfolded on the field. Same play, you know, same facts. Now the person next to me probably saw it pretty much the same as me. But people mm-hmm. on the other side of the stadium saw it a much different way. Now, mm-hmm. we may have still seen this. We may still agree, yeah, he stepped out of bounds or he, he scored the touchdown. But unless I go to the other side of the stadium and see things from that person's perspective and say, okay, you show me what you saw, then I won't be able to understand them. And I also may not under, may not figure out that I was wrong. It's possible. You go to the other side and you're like, actually, I see things differently now. Or maybe you get to the other side and you show them, now, listen, you're missing this. But you know, the point is that there is room for perspective. There's not room for perspective on issues like the results of the election. Listen, Trump lost the election. That's a fact. There's not room for perspective on that kind of thing. But there are plenty of issues where there is room for perspective and we have to accept that. Then we've got to get the other person to accept that to a certain degree, mm-hmm. don't we? Yeah. Before you can really talk about it. And so yes. I think yes. that's the hard part where you sit down with them and you go, oh, look, we agree that this is whatever, but they get caught in the minutia. And I think part of the problem is the, these talking points or these politicians like Mitch McConnell and stuff that run everyone around by the nose. They just pick up these talking points, Christian radio and right wing radio, and they just run with it. And so that feeds in their narrative and everyone just runs around parroting that bullshit. And so hopefully there's a way to do this. You write that bridge builders embrace conflict. So does that mean I need to go fisticuffs? Or- it means that we don't have to build bridges with each other. We don't have to just eliminate all our disagreements. That's actually not the point because that's often the critique of this perspective is this 
very weak or milk toast way of doing things that you have to I'll just get along. Why can't we all just get along? But that's actually not it at all. Though the point of building bridges is not to iron out all these conflicts. The point is so that we can address the conflicts together, or we can at least have an understanding of each other as a person, even though we might still disagree. Again, it comes back to our democracy. It doesn't work without conflict. The system was built so that we would work together in some way. The problem is that compromise has become a dirty word. It's become this this idea that if you compromise, then you are going against your principles. But the truth is that compromise actually is a principle. And it's a principle that's really interwoven in our national politics, which again, is not to say that you have to give up everything you believe in as a person. To No, you can pursue it all try to get the other person on the other, on your side by building a bridge toward them. I think people can change, Chris. I think we've seen this country change over time. You mentioned gay marriage earlier. I think that's a really interesting example where America has changed. In 2004, 31% of Americans were pro-gay marriage. I just saw the Gallup data the other day. Now it's up to more than 70%. So in, oh. in basically a decade and a half, it's gone from 30 to 70. I thought that was a contentious social issue we would never agree on. It turns out it, it actually people are changing their minds. So people can change. It just sometimes takes time. I wonder if, too, that decade and a half was real, it's more changing of the generations than than anything. I remember somebody said to me once about closet racism and a lot of the older generation that was supporting Trump. I had one of my friends say, you're probably not going to change those people. We just have to wait for the, that generation to die off that that grew up in the fifties and grew up with some of those hardcore biases. This is a way for them to die off. And this younger generation, of course, seems to be the one that's more um, inclusive and more open-minded about things. Do you think that's maybe true with, with seeing that 10 and a half year span that maybe a different set of voters have come into play? I, I imagine that's got to be part of it. Although I think if you look at the data, you can see even the views among older people changing mm-hmm. as well, maybe not to the same extent to your point, but, um, but you can't move 40 points of the American public without having at least a few older people who change their minds as well. Yeah, I definitely think there's no doubt that the older you get in general, the more entrenched you are in views. But again, that's why I think maybe education is a good way, good place to start. But I don't think we can stop there because, of course, not everyone, we can't send everyone back to school. I think that it, it does have to be more organic than that. And there are cool groups that are trying to reach older people. For example, a group called Media Wise and the News Literacy Project. They're actually teaching senior citizens how to try to sort fact from fiction. And they're working with the AARP to do that, which is really cool. And the point is that on a lot of cases, seniors actually really do want to figure out the truth, but they just, they really struggle with understanding what's true and what's not online. And we have to give them some grace and understanding they, they did not grow up in this digital era and they have to sort through this crazy collision of opinions and facts. And maybe we need to, to equip them with a few skills on how to sort through it. And I just real quick, one, one, how they start that. They don't start by saying, so let's talk about how you all don't, how you all incorrectly believe well, they don't start there they start with let's talk about have you, has anyone gotten an online health scam everyone anyone got that in their email so, oh everyone's everyone raises their hand that's a, a nonpartisan thing we can all agree okay misinformation is a problem so now let's talk about how do we deal with it and you just you start from a non-political place like that mm-hmm. and then you, you go from there I like that. That's pretty good. You're talking about how active listening is important to resolving stuff. How do I deal with if the other person is a moron? There's an old line from, I I believe it's from Ron Brown, Ron White. You can't fix stupid. Stupid is forever. There are some people, I don't know, I'm just doing a joke here, but talk to us about active listening and why that's important. 
Yeah. You're not going to reach everyone. You know, I think that's just a fact. And it's, listen, you look at the percentage of people in this country who believe in crazy things. I was going to say like uh, the fact that aliens live here or something, except for that we now have a government agency saying that maybe they do. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, but no, the point is that, yeah, you're always going to get a percentage of people who are going to believe something crazy. That's just going to be the case. But I do think that when you listen to someone who's not like you, then that actually is the way to start. And it doesn't mean that you're validating what they believe. It's that you're validating who they are as a person and that they have a right to have beliefs. And, the, and here's the, one of the interesting parts, though, about this. The, one of the goals of listening is actually to be heard. Like that you want that person to listen to you. But if you don't listen to them first, a lot of times they're not going to engage with you. You have to invest in their story. And, and a lot of people, and this is like pretty well backed up and by data, they just want to be heard that you see them, that you understand them, you see who they are, you validate their human humanity. And then all of a sudden they, they start to listen to you too. And I, I find that to be such an interesting dichotomy because- we often think, no, I got to tell them how it is. But actually, maybe if I listen first, then I can start to understand them. And then I'll be a little more likely to be able to explain and do that show, not tell. It's like your English teacher always tells you, show, not tell. We need to start showing people shoulder to shoulder in these conversations with each other, how we see the world instead of telling them how we see the world face to face, which I think just doesn't work. There you go. We have to work together somehow. So what do you hope the book achieves? Do you hope that more people will focus on trying to be bridge builders as opposed to uh, just attacking on talking points or something? Two things. I want to start a conversation because I do believe that conversations between people who aren't like each other are crucial to our democracy, that we can't do this without it. It just doesn't work if we all stay in our silos. You can't change the world from an island. You got to build a bridge to be able to start to change the world. So I, I think it starts there. But yeah, and then I think the other thing is I, I want people to see that, listen, something really small, like just getting to know someone who's not like you can actually really start to change things. It might change you, it might change them. It might do both. And I think we can all agree that we can't stay where we are. I think we can all agree. That's the good news. There is actually a, a study out there that shows something like 67% of Americans are what we call an exhausted majority, which is basically, they're just fed up with everybody. They're just, I can't deal with this noise anymore. So I, I think that's in a bizarre way, the people like, they just want us to be able to start to communicate effectively, even if we continue to disagree. There you go. There you go. It's been wonderful to have you on, Nathan. Anything more you want to plug out on the book before we go? It's just an uh, honor to be on your show. Bridge Builders is on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. It's in you know bookstores and things, but just appreciate the, the support. What I'd say is to listeners, show that you support a book like this because the publishing world needs to see it. They, I understand they publish a lot of books that people that may tear people apart. Let's support a book that tries to do the opposite. There you go. And that's it's important because if you don't support it, then you're going to have more if it bleeds, it leads <laughs> on the news. You've got to, exactly right. they give you what you want as an audience. Tune in for the good stuff and you'll get more good stuff. Yeah. It's kind of like Walmart said one time, they go, if more people buy like organic, we'll fill the shelves with organic food. That's right. what it's marketing and, and marketing products. So demand better and you'll get better and support books like yours. Nathan, give us your plug so people can find you on the interwebs. Certainly. You can follow me on Twitter at Nathan Bomey, B-O-M-E-Y. You can also go to my website, NathanBomey.com. But Twitter, just Google me and find me there. That's where all you'll see it all right there. There you go. And Nathan, wonderful to have you on. Very honored. Thank you very much for spending time with us today. Excellent. Thanks so much for having me, Chris. Thank you. And thanks to my audience for tuning in. Be sure to pick up the book, Bridge Builders. 
bringing people together in a polarized age. I think this is really important. We need to all be better bridge builders. And why can't we all just get along? Famous <laughs> thing. And to my audience, go see us on youtube.com for which says Chris Voss. Tell your friends, names, relatives, subscribe to the podcast. Go to uh, goodreads.com for which says Chris Voss and see all of our groups on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and all those different places. Be good to each other. Be nice. And we'll see you guys next time.